Hello and welcome to the next episode of the Compete Waffle. My name's Alicia. I'm an advanced sports dietitian and co-founder of Compete Nutrition. Uh, as we roll on through the female-specific episodes on the Compete Waffle, my next guest is amazing. I got introduced to her via a colleague and I'm so, so grateful because uh, our next guest is Mel Matheson and she was an absolute pleasure to talk to and I just yeah, cannot wait to share it because I approached Mel um, in the space of menopause menopausal nutrition uh, and it's a topic that I get asked a lot about but it's also a topic that people shy away from covering uh, and there's always lots of questions but not necessarily the ability or confidence to ask those questions so uh, we had the pleasure of inviting Mel on to cover very much specifically the um, perimenopausal menopausal and postmenopausal nutrition space um, she is a dual accredited sports dietitian and also exercise physiologist she's passionate in more than just the menopausal nutrition and really works through the um, space in energy availability, menstrual cycles and that how to make peace with food peace so that really big relationship with food discussing that and then moving through that uh, she really inspires people to liberate themselves from that weight cycling that restrictive eating and also that burnout uh, and because she brings that um, real message through she um, hopefully will empower a lot of women in this space to move through that diet cycle even um, through that older age and make us realize that it's not um, something that only um, the younger population population deal with and the numbers that she gives in terms of how many people are struggling with disordered eating throughout this age group um, is quite alarming uh, and it's also something that I know so many of us are passionate about so she goes through a lot of questions in terms of any foods that are specifically going to improve um, how we get through that menopausal time how we can manage symptoms how we can um, get through that exercise side of things uh, and also that piece around um, the health within here how that relates to what our weight does around this time and, and how to deal with the stresses of change that do happen in this change of life as many people call it so um, really excited to welcome Mel uh, I think I have done enough waffling she does an amazing intro into where she's currently at and what she's looking to um, really achieve in how she practices and then we get straight into those questions so without further ado I is my pleasure to welcome Mel Matheson to the waffle It is an absolute pleasure to welcome Mel. Thank you so much for joining us on the Compete Waffle this morning. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. I actually haven't met Mel before. I've come across her via a colleague and friend, and I'm so grateful for the intro because we've just had a little catch up beforehand and turns out we're both mums to crazy kids and just living the dream at the moment. <laughs> Absolutely. So if we do need to pause at any stage, it is because her little one-year-old has woken up, which I totally appreciate and empathise with. There, there is a total possibility that that could happen. <laughs> well, thanks so much for taking the risk with me. And um, yeah, don't worry, we all understand. And I think every listener of, of um, this podcast understands as well, because I do it to them all the time. Um, so Mel, can you tell us a bit about yourself? Sure. So I'm based in Dubbo. I've been practicing for around 10 years now. I am a sports dietitian and exercise physiologist. I studied in Wollongong. So I graduated in 2010. Um, I've been pretty much working in that regional area for pretty much the majority of my career, starting off with working a lot more in Aboriginal health, AMS space, and then transitioning kind of to um, 
working within fertility, working within my own, I've kind of established my business, just seeing clients privately. And I really kind of found myself in um, the eating disorder um, space, helping women working within alleviating a lot of their distresses around their body image and disordered eating behaviors um, mm. and how that kind of ties in with over-exercising. Yeah. Wow, amazing. And it was all these things that tied in. I'm like, I need to get Mel on because we had, um, I was just saying to Mel before we started recording, actually, that I'm like, I'm sure I'm going to invite her back on for another topic. But today we are going to be focusing on menopause um, mainly uh, and really around what that is, what happens at that time and the nutrition pathway and nutrition options that we can utilize to hopefully get through that time um, to the best of our ability while also being active. So um, I really thank you for that, Mel. And I know it's a topic that many, many women have questions about, but not necessarily are willing to come forward um, with them. So I'm hoping that this podcast brings with it a lot of conversation, a lot of answering of questions, um, but also a lot of awareness as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, to start with, I would love to kind of delve into what menopause is. So um, what happens at this time, uh, the shifts in hormones that might be happening uh, and kind of just starting there so that everyone's kind of on the same page as we move through. Sure. So menopause itself, the definition is the period in which it's been sort of 12 months to a year since you've had your last cycle. Mm -hmm. So that's the definition of actual menopause perimenopause is the period for anywhere from five to seven years prior to that where you kind of have this winding down of the menstrual cycle so a lot of our reproductive hormones are decreasing we might have an increased frequency between cycles and then progressively that winds down to having no cycles for a period of 12 months and then that is a officially kind of defined as the period of menopause so the two hormones that we see changing the most are estrogen and progesterone so there are reproductive hormones that when we have our normal kind of 28 day cycle you'll have kind of a peak of estrogen prior to that 14 day ovulation period and then a peak of progesterone towards the towards the tail end of the cycle so as we kind of work through perimenopause both of those hormones the hormone levels decrease to the point where they're kind of really non-existent. Mm. So a lot of the symptoms and changes that we experience at that time are kind of a result of a decrease in those hormone levels. Sure. That, yeah, that does make sense. And at what age can women tend to expect these changes to start to happen? There is a wide variety. So anywhere from around 45 to 55 is kind of the, the standard, a standard range for menopause to occur but you can certainly have it at, at varying ages there is quite a few that can have a kind of an early menopause or a delayed but usually you'll see it kind of within that 45 to 55 bracket mm, really interesting and uh with these shifts in hormones what are the kind of the symptoms that happen with that other than obviously that change in cycle what other things can people expect to be feeling so most women will report hot flushes or night sweats so that's experienced in around 80 percent of women um, they'll also notice changes usually with sleep they can experience kind of sleep disturbances and insomnia that's in around one in four um, there's changes with mood we might be feeling a little bit more tearful feeling a bit more anxious or depressed mm -hmm. and then we have kind of changes in the way in our shape so we're we have a period where we experience generally weight gain usually weight gain around our middle or central area um, and that's 
you that's kind of in response to it's kind of the body's natural way of increasing your estrogen levels so the fat cells around our abdominal area expand so that they're able to produce more estrogen from within the cell and that's kind of acting as a bit of a buffer to um the kind of the bone depletion and to the to the hot flushes that we experience from that decrease from the reproductive side of things Oh, interesting. I know this is a question I get asked a lot and it is around those weight changes and body shape changes that can be really challenging um, for women who may not have experienced those before. Um, is there uh, you know, the, any strategies or nutrition related behaviours or um, additions or changes that you would recommend in that state? Or is it really about, of course, first of all, talking about that exceptions, ex uh, accepting that change and moving through that body positive place into um, nourishing. Yeah, definitely. So it can be quite a really quite a challenging time for for women from a multitude of reasons. So we have kind of living in that Western society of that young and thin ideal. So experiencing it's the process of of aging, and there might be other areas um, that come with aging aging that we're not that feeling that great about. So we often focus a lot of our energy in keeping our weight or losing weight or maintaining that thinner ideal, um, and which in turn, if we're focusing a lot on that, often it leads to a greater body dissatisfaction. So around three quarters of women will experience body dissatisfaction around that midlife period. And if we're looking to, often we're kind of looking to resort to changes with food and exercise, which can kind of lead to kind of those disordered behaviours or that unhealthy relationship with food and exercise. So it's important to kind of reflect on if that relationship with food and exercise has kind of gone that little bit too far or if we still do have that healthy relationship where we haven't kind of gotten to that point of really restrictive rigidity. If we're still a little bit flexible, that's kind of really important as well. But absolutely. So it can kind of be that peak time where we experience that body dissatisfaction. It's We also know that it's a time um, similar to puberty, where as women, we experience weight gain that kind of goes with that process. But at the same time, we, we're experiencing a lot of pressure to kind of keep our bodies the same, keep our sizing the same, not showing that shape change. So it can be quite hard for us to to experience that as women without feeling like we want to kind of resort on focusing on keeping that weight down or losing weight or putting a lot of our energy and attention into presenting our bodies to kind of reducing our, keeping our weight the same and keeping in kind of the same clothing yeah. size. Yeah, absolutely. It can be really confusing in the sense that, um, they are we like often don't feel like we're changing too much about what we've eaten before but the way that our body is storing that fat as you said has changed and the way our body is utilizing that energy and prioritizing that energy has changed and so when um they are feeling like you know that change isn't necessarily happening it can be really confusing then and the answer would be oh well, i just need to eat less or i need to restrict more yeah, absolutely. So often we see that burning the candle at both ends of, well, I'm going to keep eating less and less, and then I'm going to continue to train more and more, which often leaves us kind of doing as much activity as a professional athlete, but at the same time, fueling ourselves as if we were um, completely bed bound or inactive. And a lot of the messages that we receive around how much we should eat or the portions that we should be eating that if we've done previous, if we have a history of dieting, we often have a lot of food rules calorie ranges um, that have kind of imprinted on us that we still kind of 
keep our food intake consistent, but at the same time, we're progressively increasing our exercise. This sounds a lot like what we would see in um, disordered eating and eating disorders. Is that something that you would see quite um, regularly in practice at this age group as well? Yeah, absolutely. So we know that there, and a lot of the information that I'm presenting is coming from um, an American kind of researcher that's really pioneered this space, Margot Main, and I'll provide some additional links. She's released quite a few books and um, resources and she's been on some great podcasts. So I'll provide those to Alicia to put into the podcast notes yeah. too. But we, we know now that eating disorders within adult women over than 50 are actually more prevalent than breast cancer. So the eating disorder prevalence has been shown to be anywhere from 13 to 15% where the prevalence of breast cancer is 12.4. But the stigma and I guess the shame that we experience around eating disorders, particularly around that midlife period, it's often associated as being something of a, um, an illness of a younger female or a female kind of going through that adolescent period, not so much something that we would see in a midlife female where it's actually quite common. So out of that 15%, only one in four will actually seek treatment. So it's often something that we're kind of, that's really, um, we've internalized a lot and can still kind of expose us to a lot of internal suffering um, and that internal kind of berating ourselves around not being good enough and working on kind of those disordered eating behaviors gradually intensifying. And we're kind of at that risk of that triggering point. And that can kind of be experiencing those body changes around this age or feeling as though we can't kind of where we could kind of keep it under control. Now we can't. And that can kind of exacerbate the whole process. Yeah. Yeah. The, the loss of control is such a big piece in this disordered eating. And then also obviously the, um, progression of that what are some of the things that um, our listeners should be looking out for in terms of what can really be classified as disordered eating behavior or leading into that eating disorder space i think coming back to the um to that place of rigidity so am i able to take a rest day what happens if i'm feeling unwell or if i'm feeling sick am i able to have that break from exercise or from my training routine how does that how, how am I able to cope with that? Does that affect me? Does that affect me in other ways where I'm becoming stressed or anxious around doing that? And mm. it's kind of similar with food. So we, we want to see that, that flexibility. So it's great to kind of have that focus of trying to eat for optimal health and eating for optimal performance, eating for optimal recovery. But when that kind of relationship with food goes that little bit too far, where we don't have the flexibility to have to enjoy food in situations, in social situations or with family and friends, or we don't kind of have, we are unable to include favorite foods because of that fear of, of calories, of weight, of um, how this will affect our body. And that's kind of to the point where it's kind of gone that little bit too far. So flexibility is really important. If you feel like your relationship with food and, and exercise has gotten to the point of becoming a little bit too rigid, if you feel like you're thinking about food a lot, Mm. Or more than kind of, again, that berate internalization, that beration of ourselves around our food choices and what we've had and can I burn this off? A lot of that internal chatter that goes on in the back of our minds can be something that's kind of giving us that warning sign that, again, maybe it can be helpful to kind of talk to a dietitian that's kind of in this space that does have experience within this kind of eating disorder, disordered eating realm to kind of work a lot of that and give you some um, strategies around coping with that. 
Unreal. That's really good advice. And I think really pragmatic and practical in that sense of like, okay, it's not necessarily one set criteria or one set symptom. There's a lot of things and it's really around our behavior and our relationship with food that then defines, you know, what this is for me and what's normal for me and which bits I should probably be seeking help with. And I really love that. And I know one big question that I do get asked um, is, is there, you know, obviously we've spoken about that shift in where weight is stored and how our body looks in that shape. Is there an actual change in our metabolism in, in this time? Yeah. So our metabolism can decrease. Um, and often we see that decrease in muscle stores and that's what translates to that decreased metabolism. Mm. You can also experience, it's tricky because we can also experience a decrease in metabolism based on previous attempts of dieting and weight cycling as well. So it's really hard to say if a lot of the change that we experience during menopause is because of hormonal changes from that period or if it's kind of tacked onto the back of a long history of weight cycling and dieting so we know that as soon as we start restricting our food that our body resists that change and a way that it does that is by reducing um, our metabolism reducing the amount of energy that we need um, reducing the the waste or the byproducts of that energy process it makes us think about food more it makes us four times hungrier we're really driven to kind of eat eat faster eat more and it's kind of doing that as a coping mechanism from that energy restriction and that focusing on that initial weight loss. Really great point. And I think um, I'll make sure that I link some more information about um, what Mel's referring to there, which is REDS or relative energy deficiency in sport, which it, the name, I, I think it needs a bit of a refresh because it's not always around sport and you don't have to be an athlete to actually have this where we do see a suppressed metabolism, but I'll make sure I link some more info in that because it is a really big topic. One of the um, things that we ask about in when we're you know, just screening for REDS is actually a pause or a lengthening of that cycle. So how do we know the difference or how do we really monitor REDS when this may be happening due to menopause as well? What's, um, is there any strategies there? It can be really tricky. So you're right. It's looking out for that cycle regularity, looking out for that any cycle that kind of goes over that 28 to 36 days is kind of in that subclinical um, menstrual cycle dysfunction that we may see prior to seeing actual amenorrhea. But you're right, when we are in that perimenopausal period or expecting or within that age bracket of expecting cycles to become more irregular, to be mm -hmm. um, to have that increased time between them, how do we kind of identify that that may be something that's actually attributed to not having enough energy on board than actually actual menopause process itself? So looking at REDS can affect lots of other symptoms, systems as well. So looking at ways in which that it might show up in that our performance may have decreased, our recovery may be impaired, we're feeling generally fatigued or more flat, where um, we might have some recurring injuries if there's kind of niggly injuries or um, like stress fractures if we're experiencing kind of a decrease in our immune function. So if we feel like the immune functions decrease, we might have gastrointestinal upsets. We might have, um, what would be some other ways? We might experience kind of changes in just overall energy during the day. Our sleep may be a little bit disturbed. So we kind of have this overlapping of symptom symptoms that we might kind of expect that we could be attributing to menopause, which could also be a result of just under fueling and over-exercising as well. 
really interesting points. And I think that is something that a lot of lot need to be aware of, because I think, as you said earlier, um, there is that trap of feeling like, well, all these different diets and diet messages are telling me that I need to eat, you know, that 1200 calorie diet. So that must be the answer. But for most people, that's actually below what we call our basal metabolic rate or how much we need if we were to sleep all day. And so what happens there is we do see that shift. We do see all those suppressions in metabolism and also um, those symptoms that you went through that aren't necessarily all around that menstrual function, but also around the symptoms around that and how we're coping each day um, to ensure that our body just has the best chance of survival in this time. So I think um, moving through now, that one of the other questions I get um, asked a lot in this time is obviously we're feeling a little bit crappy. We might be having those hot flushes. We may not be sleeping well. Um, our hormones are shifting. Our body weight's changing. Are there some key nutrients or um, key supplements even that um, uh, we could be considering here? Yeah, so we, we know that sort of the, the process that coincides with menopause is that decrease in estrogen and that in turn increases our rate of bone depletion or decreased bone stores. So we have this period where our body estrogen acts as quite a protective hormone for our bone um, stores of calcium. So when, once that decreases, we have an increased rate of bone depletion. So ensuring that we have enough dietary calcium is really essential. So our calcium requirements go up to around 1300 milligrams a day, which is roughly four serves a day. Again, if we're um, dairy, maybe something that we, we might have one or two serves, but we may not be consistently consuming four serves a day. So it's important to kind of reflect on how often you're having dairy, what your key dairy serves are. Um, and if you're consistently kind of having that requirement, some other nutrients can really help with optimizing our bony stores and, and, reducing that rate of bone depletion. And that's things like vitamin D. So vitamin D deficiency is really common. We want to make sure that that's something that's just on that regular screening with your GP. If your levels are low, it will need to be supplemented, but even um, just ensuring that we're having some of those food sources or making sure that we're getting enough sunlight. So ideally kind of 10 to 15 minutes in direct sunlight or on a sunny day or anywhere up to 30 minutes for a day where it's not so sunny, but dietary sources would be things like fortified breakfast cereals, margarine, milk, eggs, oily fish. Um, so just getting that tested, if you do have an, um, a low amount of, a low store of vitamin D, just making sure that you're taking the supplement prescribed by your GP and then just ensuring that you're having that balanced diet. Magnesium can also be helpful. So um, magnesium can help with the preventing, the, encouraging preventing that bone depletion and that would be in things like your whole grains in your um, leafy greens nuts and seeds um, as well as vitamin k so things such as prunes or the phenol phenolic compound within <laughs> <laughs> um, within prunes can be helpful um, as well it has a an association there's been a little bit of research that's shown that it's helpful as well as vitamin k so just dark leafy greens so if you think of kind of like the big picture of foods i've mentioned it's things like whole grains having suitable fruits and vegetables so they're kind of foods that we kind of expect to include or to see within kind of that general balanced diet wonderful 
Yeah, that's, that's really good advice. I think, um, yeah, we can kind of go too far down the nutrient side and forget that bigger picture that we eat food. And um, I love talking about the nutrients, but always taking it back to what that actually looks like if you were to now eat, <laughs> which is what we do. So it's nothing too fancy or expensive or um, too fad diety, really. It's really just that going back to basics and making sure you're getting lots of variety, lots of colour, uh, and really making sure that you're nourishing in that way of energy availability as well. Is there any um, any supplements that you tend to recommend? Obviously, you've worked through um, that vitamin D piece and that kind of thing. Are there any other um, supplements, herbals, that kind of thing that have any evidence in this space of reducing symptoms or managing symptoms um, or helping? So phytoestrogens are probably the only other one where there's kind of a mixed, but still a little bit of evidence there that it can help with hot flushes yep. so a lot of the research is they were supplemented during the research but you can also get them from dietary sources so a lot of your soy or soy isoflavones so things like soy milk tofu um edamame yep. <laughs> tempeh um, and looking at things like oats barley brown rice legumes chickpeas they can help with increasing that intake um, through a dietary perspective as well. So they can kind of act as um, almost like a fake estrogen. So they can kind of bind to some of those estrogen receptors, which can help to manage those hot flush symptoms. Awesome. Yeah, that's really cool. And doable too. It's very much around that Mediterranean type of eating, isn't it? Lots of colour. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Fats and um, having that variety in the piece. So um, I, I am loving it because I'm not hearing any crazy things that I couldn't find at the shops. Well, at the moment we are recording this. In the shop here. <laughs> so maybe take this advice once they're revealed. <laughs> um, so yeah, I really like that. Is there, um, you mentioned, and I, I want to pick your exercise physiologist brain for a second. Mm -hmm. Um, in, uh, as we go through that phase, there is a loss in muscle mass. Is that due to the hormone shift mainly? And is there a way to prevent that or at least minimize the losses? Um, it, it can be, so definitely again, kind of attributed to that hormone change that we experience hmm. is if it's also on the background of inadequate fueling, we know that even if we're timing our protein perfectly, it's really not going to be used to maintain muscle mass. It's going to be used more primarily as a source of fuel. So if we are in that realm of, if we've been dieting, fad dieting or under eating, over exercising, it's going to be really hard for us to maintain those muscle stores. Um, if we're doing that consistently over a period of time. So it can be kind of attributed to menopause itself. There could also be some other things going on in the background. It's also good to kind of look at, I guess, if we're focusing on endurance training, just making sure that we're still ticking a lot of the other boxes to ensure that our training program is balanced. And that's including some strength or resistance-based training two to three times a week. If we are doing those endurance sets, making sure that again, we're getting variety and working on things around flexibility or any other areas that you feel like you want is a bit of a goal for you to work on within your training program. And also kind of ensuring that you're including exercise that you actually, that you enjoy as well. So sometimes if our relationship with exercise has kind of gone a little bit to the, a little bit to the unhealthy realm and I, I get it, I've totally been there. I've been a complete over-exerciser. It was, I, that was pretty much how I spent the majority of my twenties. It's good just to kind of reflect and pull back if you feel like you've got balance within your training program, if there is anything else that you want to include and just making sure that you kind of getting that balance between endurance or um, 
working on cardiovascular training as well as including strength as well as if there's and sometimes we kind of have the perception that certain exercise is not good enough it doesn't count as being good enough in terms of a workout and whether that's duration or time whether that's intensity whether that's like we can't I can't go for a walk that doesn't count that's not a workout I can't do gardening that doesn't count I can't do line dancing that doesn't count like there's lots of different or yoga or pilates there's lots of different exercises that we kind of feel like if we've been basing a lot of our exercise choices around calories or manipulating weight or body composition that we we focus a lot of those choices around that rather than what we want to actually do so it's kind of good just to reflect and think that if you are including everything that you would like to within your exercise program and just making sure that it's balanced from just ticking the boxes in terms of including strength because that will in turn help to reduce and minimize the amount of muscle stores that you've depleted yeah, love that. And really love that point around um, you know, doing exercise, even if it doesn't actually have that intensity that you would define exercise as. Um, obviously something that I have struggled with. Um, and I think many people have like walking. Yeah, particularly walking with kids, right? It's like, come on, <laughs> this is my exercise time and I'm not doing anything. Yeah. And we like... <laughs> And we know that this is like such a peak time for we're really overcommitted generally. Like we're juggling looking at kids, we're juggling looking up, we might be looking after parents, we're still working. We really kind of prioritize ourselves very low on the pecking order in terms of prioritizing self-care, making sure that we're managing stress, including hobbies. Most women that I work with, I'll talk to them around including more opportunities to to do hobbies to have fun to have downtime to make time for self-care and it's something that's really quite foreign because we really have spent a large portion of our lives kind of dedicating ourselves to others yeah that's such a good point because uh, you know around you know you you might have kids that are teenagers there um and it's very busy time it's a very stressful time you're thinking about the future of your kids but you're also trying to um think about your retirement and safety there and security there and um you know there's a lot of balls in the air so i think being really um empathetic with yourself and um forgiving of yourself in this time is a really big thing and that self-care piece is yeah so foreign but i love when it comes up in conversation for that reason and i think we all need reminding that it's such a big part um, of all this picture because if we can aim for wellness and health uh the performance will come and the changes and the um you know the things that you're looking to identify with will come yeah definitely um do you have any uh i guess like you've touched a bit on that training load piece are there um, things that we need to change in terms of how much we're training over that menopausal period? So um, can we still hold that load that we may have had pre or does that change or does our recovery change with that adaptation and change in hormones? It really probably would depend. It's so individual and it kind of depends on where you're coming from with your training. So if you're kind of on that spiral of train more, train more, train more, mm. often like I've seen a multitude of women that have really intense training regimes and at the same time um, there's one in particular that I'm thinking of was really heavily based in triathlon training for two three to four hours a day as well as working in a really manual and like a really labor intensive job but at the same time was really fearful of weight gain was quite restrictive with food intake was really kind of quite fearful of things like carbohydrates and and avoiding those within the diet 
so you, you kind of have this really big contrast between how much exercise she's kind of wanting to participate in or to pushing her body to do but at the same time she's really really under fueling and we've kind of worked on tackling kind of a bit of both so we've worked on kind of prioritizing training sets that she enjoys so she enjoys the like the the faster sets or because she has it's a shorter duration so she can spend more time with her grandson like it's we kind of look at the big picture of what do you want to get out of your training often we kind of we might be getting into endurance to kind of to get that sense of achievement or that I've, I could do it. Like I did an Ironman, I did a marathon, I did, I've done X distance in a triathlon. And then once we get to that point, it's kind of like, okay, well, I've done that. So what, what are my goals kind of going forward? What, what's important to me? How could I kind of prioritize this? And usually if we're in the point of really under fueling, we do kind of have to restrict, uh, well, not restrict, but we do kind of have to cut back or kind of prioritize the training session so that we're not kind of at the same time expecting our body to do really high training loads while we're kind of under fueling so because the dietary stuff takes time and that fear of weight gain that is really really it can be really unsettling and it takes time to kind of un like chip away at that and work it kind of in a stepwise process of increasing that food intake but the improvement that they notice in the training performance in recovery and how they feel day to day in even sleep in other symptoms that they're experiencing is is amazing it just takes a little bit to get there so kind of it really does depend on the individual and how much training they're doing yeah and where they are in in their what goals they have what's a priority for them if they're training for event sure we if they've got a coach we're kind of working with that and the training load that they're expected to do mm-hmm. but if the training stays the same then it just means that there's a little bit more pressure to kind of get that nutrition up to make sure that we're meeting those needs Fantastic. And another thing that tends to happen is there's this um, always that question around my appetite has changed. I feel like I can't keep full anymore or I'm craving um, sweet foods and that kind of thing. Do you have any tips and um, ideas on how to manage that or at least, um, you know, moving forward, what things maybe they could consider doing? Yeah. So, um, So we know that if we've been restricting our food intake, if we've been, again, focusing on, so if we think back to how I was saying, if we've had a period of weight loss or if we've been doing a diet or some form of reducing our calorie intake, often our body drives that hunger. So we're four times hungrier and we're sort of craving different foods and it can lead to a significant increase in the rate of binge eating. And we know that in primarily in eating disorders in this space, binge eating is one of the more prevalent eating disorders rather than kind of anorexia and bulimia which when we think about eating disorders often we think about those teenage anorexics and that's kind of the image that comes to mind so then you kind of have this midlife um, client where they're experiencing that loss of control when they're eating and that can be around foods that we've been restricting which could be sweet foods we might say things like i'm addicted to sweet foods i can't keep it in the house And it just means that the relationship that we have with the restriction of that food is kind of driving that overeating. So if we can kind of work on alleviating a lot of that restriction, usually the overeating really does settle down, the binging settles down and we can't address the binging without addressing the restriction. So diet culture leaves us to believe that the the binging that we're experiencing is the problem, like that the period where we've regained the weight that we've lost is the problem. If I just stuck to it, if I had more willpower, if I was able to maintain that restriction, if I just, if I could, and it's, it's reflective on ourselves. So we often feel 
quite a, a sense of guilt or shame or associated with that. But if we, it's more the restriction that kind of needs to be addressed. So if we work on making sure that you're eating enough during the day, and again, that can kind of come back to those food rules that we have on ourselves, that avoiding or fear of carbohydrates, that a portion should only be one piece of fruit for morning tea instead of two or three things. Like it, it's kind of, we kind of have a lot of food rules that we imprint on ourselves during the day that really sets us up to overeat and to binge towards the end of the day. Mm. Yeah, that's really, really good insights. And um, I think with that binge eating, I'm so glad it came into the conversation because it is definitely the most common disordered eating or eating disorder, depending on the um, level of it that we see in um, this age group. And I'm so grateful for you to kind of talk through it for that reason. Uh, another trend um, with binge eating is obviously considering your fatigue. So in that time where you are feeling tired or fatigued, whether that's because of the hormonal changes or your training load or your energy deficiency, it's going to lead you to that place of being more likely to have that binge eating episode. And you know, it can be really hard to go, oh, I just, you know, it's not, it's not binge eating, it's just overeating. Can you talk through the difference between an overeating episode because that is very common and okay um, compared to what binge eating is yeah so it would really kind of come back to that sense of loss of control and the period of time some people look at the amount of food that was consumed over say a two-hour window but it's kind of the sense of how you're feeling emotionally so if you felt like you had that sense of loss of control that the guilt and shame that you experience after a binge they're kind of things that we would use to kind of define it as a binge versus um, comfort eating emotional eating overeating which again when we're ever we're kind of reflecting on ourselves it's good to kind of look at it from that curiosity perspective yeah. and yeah. not be so critical so often we in a critics raging we're really critical of ourselves like why did you what are you doing? Like, you shouldn't be doing that. And it's important just to be like, okay, so let's just think about like, let's, what's going on here? Like, let's think about over the day. Did I, was I able to have my meal breaks today? Did I have enough food? How am I going emotionally? Am I feeling, are my other needs being met? Am I sleep deprived? There can be all other things that can kind of trigger an overeating episode. And it's good to kind of just reflect and be like, okay, well, tomorrow I'll try and make sure that I have my morning tea or I'll make sure that I make time for lunch or I'll make sure that I, I feel like a salad isn't, isn't kind of sustaining me enough. So I'm going to work on increasing the, the density of that meal. It's kind of a, an opportunity to reflect and learn rather than just to be critical and, and judgmental towards ourselves. Oh my God. So good. <laughs> um, Mel, that's been so amazing. Thank you. It's like hearing myself talk. So it's really nice <laughs> <laughs> else to be repeating this stuff rather than me all the time. Um, I, I don't even know where to go from here. Are there topics and um, questions that you get asked that, um, you know, you'd love to cover in this space? Um, I feel like I, something just popped to mind and I'm trying to think what it was. Um, uh, come to mind. Um, yeah, you mentioned about sleep and the sleep, mm. like we know that sleep disturbance increases our hunger. It, we're mm. craving different foods. So focusing on sleep and making sleep a priority is mm. really, really important. Again, if we're not focusing on making ourselves a priority or we just kind of get to the point where we just think, I'll just put up with it. But it could be if we can really improve the amount of sleep that you're getting, that's significant 
significant one for recovery to training. That's a significant one for long-term health. That's a significant one for how we feel day-to-day in terms of our well-being. And there are options that we can do around that. So looking at our sleep hygiene, our sleep habits, if we have that consistent bedtime schedule, what we're doing kind of prior to wanting to go to bed, what sort of things we do if we have kind of that routine, looking at caffeine intake, looking at alcohol intake, there's, we can, it's something that you can chat to your GP around. Mm -hmm. There's different sort of medications, looking at hormone therapy or antidepressants that can sometimes help looking at there's CBT. So even engaging in a counselor or someone that can kind of work through some CBT strategies to kind of get that sleep routine improved so that you're, because if, if we're feeling really anxious, if we're really stressed, if we've got a lot going on in terms of, um, our thinking and our mindset and our worrying at that time, often that kind of goes hand in hand with sleep disruption too. So it's great just to kind of, to get that extra support to kind of add to your toolkit of different ways that you can kind of help to get yourself a better night's sleep than what you're kind of currently getting. Mm, mm, I really like that because it's not just it's not just one area of life is it there's so many different areas that we can really focus on and it doesn't mean that they're all going to be above the line all the time Um, you know it's really hard to hold all these things above and it's really just about aiming for that progress piece so are there things um, that we can work on over time Yeah, Yeah. yeah Now I can hear Bob in the background, so I <laughs> wrap it up. I think. Um, uh, is there any piece of advice that you'd like to leave us with before we have any time? Um, I'm probably just that it's like our the resentment towards our body and the struggles with our food and eating behaviors is something that we've usually carried with us for a really long time, mm. and it's something that you can it's not a character flaw it's something that you can have significant improvement on that we can really work on changing that relationship that you have with body and you can really make peace with food and that's kind of really important that it doesn't have to be something that takes a lot of your focus and energy that you can really work on um really repairing that relationship and get that freedom and liberation that you deserve yeah i love that because i think at this point um as you said very early on in this podcast is that it tends to be just something that we live with and we just go oh this is me it's a character flaw it's something that i've just it's me now what's the point of even trying to change it or i can't change it Um, but the truth is is that don't settle you know if you are feeling really fatigued all day if you aren't feeling yourself if you are low in mood if you are struggling through training sessions or with that body um, image and body confidence then please seek help and please start that discussion and whether it be with Mel or myself or anyone in your trusted circle or even starting that conversation with someone to then get a referral to someone in this space and someone who respects their space is really really important um so yeah I really appreciate Mel's time thank you so much for taking the time out of your morning um I hope you have a lovely day with your kitties now um and yeah I really really appreciate all your insights because I know it's just going to be so valuable I know I learn a lot uh, and I hope many others do too so thank you so much much Mel looking forward to chatting again soon definitely thank you
Thank you so much for joining in and listening to The Waffle with Mel. Um, it was an absolute pleasure to have her. So thank you again, Mel, for joining us and giving up your time. Um, and I know with Bubs in the background, it can be a little bit crazy and a little bit stressful. So you did so, so well. Um, thank you so much for listening. As promised, we'll put all of Mel's details into the podcast episode details um, so that you can find her and chat to her and reach out if you would like to know more. Um, as always, we have a free initial assessment over on our website. So if anything that we discussed today around um, the relationship with food peace, um, along with all things management around that menopausal time, uh, please reach out. We would love to support you. We'd love to get you started. So our free assessment is really just an opportunity to get that conversation started, introduce ourselves, and hopefully give you some really practical tips on where to from here for you, uh, what support might look like if you needed it beyond the um, assessment, and really just get you started and get that confidence up. So if you head to our website, www.competewithneatnutrition.com, you will see the free assessment link straight away. You can't miss it. Um, so yeah, really looking forward to chatting to you all. You will hear from a dietitian in person um, when you put that link through uh, and we can chat from there. So thank you so much for joining us, guys. Until the next, next episode, stay well, stay healthy, and we'll chat soon. Cheers. Thank you.